0: Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thank you so much for tuning in wherever you are in the UK and indeed the rest of the world. And this is our last time together before Christmas. Uh, So if it's okay with all of you, I'm going to have a festive look at a word. Yeah, we're going to have a laugh, a festive celebratory podcast by looking at one word. And that word is reform. Now, as you know, in this podcast, we uh, reflect and try and delve deep in relation to a whole range of ubiquitous terms in British politics, the centre ground, modernisation, hard left, all the kind of terms that uh, we kind of deploy all the time. And one of the things we try and do here is sort of examine what it really means and the scale of the imprecision. And spoiler alert, the scale of imprecision with all these terms is monumental and nowhere more so in relation to reform. So I'm going to talk about that for a bit, and then um, we go to a few of your questions, questions that reflect some of the epic themes we've been talking about here on the podcast together over recent weeks. So a lot to get through, as ever, in our time together. Now, the reason I'm reflecting on reform is because the word has gone out from number 10 that Rishi Sunak sees reform of the NHS as a solution. Uh, certainly by the time of the next general election as a way of delivering given the massive backlog and so on he is looking at reform and there have been a number of admiring columns saying at last uh, people like sunak are returning to the theme of reform of the nhs At the same time, uh, Labour's Shadow Health Secretary, Wes Streeting, has been hailed for acknowledging that reform is required. Wes Streeting gave a talk to Policy Exchange last week, where again he was widely praised for saying he is under no illusion when the cliché is applied that the NHS is the envy of the world given the number of challenges it faces. And a lot of columnists said, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. At least someone is thinking of reform. Uh, It's West Streeting, why aren't more Tories thinking of reform? And there, uh, number 10, a briefing, oh, Rishi, very much, onto the issue of reform. We can widen it uh, further. Uh, George Osborne, when reflecting on the year and the challenges ahead, said... Uh, what's happened to reform of the NHS? We did it in the coalition, but it's it's out of fashion. Where what's happened to reform? And uh, he was doing that on the Andrew Neil show, and Ed Balls was next to him nodding about that, though adding uh, because uh, Ed Balls is more forensic than a lot of these people. That investment is also an issue, but reform. This ubiquitous word in British politics, I predict, is going to be a big theme uh, in the early months of uh, next year in relation specifically to the NHS. Um, The NHS needs reform. Reform is back on the agenda. But let's explore what is meant by this ubiquitous term. Who, anywhere, across the political spectrum, is against a reform of the NHS. I pose that question uh, because, for example, it can be no surprise that any Labour politician from uh, West Streeting to well to the left of the Labour Party will be seeking some reforms of the NHS because the Labour Party, for all its differences, were broadly united in their opposition to the coalition's reforms, which are still kind of broadly in place. So given that they oppose those reforms, and those reforms are in place, they're going to look at reforming the reforms. They're not going to say, oh, right, we've changed our mind now, and we think they're brilliant. And just a reminder that those reforms introduced in the Cameron era uh, were about the elected government taking more of a backseat and trying to devolve power downwards uh, to empower the patient. That was the idea behind those reforms. And they were uh, a development of the Blair reforms and the Alan Milburn reforms when he was briefly health secretary. Um, Now, there has been a reaction to those reforms, not just in the Labour Party. And by the way, I think the reason why Cameron supported those reforms of the NHS was largely political. He he wasn't a details uh, person in policy terms, and policy didn't greatly interest him. But uh, he was fascinated by the game of politics. And his calculation, I know this because I I spoke to him about it, actually, in the build-up to the Andrew Lansley reforms when he was health secretary and so on. He assumed the Blairite wing of the Labour Party would fully support them. And he was taken aback when uh, the likes of even Alan Milburn uh, wrote articles and gave interviews uh, opposing the uh, nature of the coalition's reforms, the scale of them, and so on. And that's when Cameron started looking again because it didn't work as a politically strategic, smart thing to do because he hadn't split off the Blairite wing of New Labour over it. Um, so uh, those reforms were aimed at, which is a perfectly noble objective, of course it is. Who's against empowering patients? But these, th- that is like the term reform, uh, imprecise. How do you empower in a system free at the point of use, uh, so you cannot use a pricing mechanism to empower, Um, how do you empower at that lowest level when the whole thing is financed centrally by central government, uh, partly through taxation, and therefore central government is bound to have a, a, an interest in how that money is being spent these are deep complicated questions that these banal phrases like empowerment uh introducing competition uh don't really address so unsurprisingly um there is a kind of clamor amongst those in opposition, for reform, uh, because they opposed the reforms last time round. And now you get to another issue, which is what form does reform take? Now, what I think has happened with the uh, Rishi Sunak, is he's had a few conversations with Jeremy Hunt uh, about this. Now, Jeremy Hunt, he knows, by the way, Hunt, uh, from his time as health secretary and as chair of the Health Select Committee, that investment is an issue. But he too uh, is a fan of a particular kind of reform. It is the Alan Milburn reform. He was in When he was health secretary, he spoke to Alan Milburn and Tony Blair about their version of reform which was close to, in some respects, uh, what Cameron was trying to do, though they thought Cameron went too far, or at least Alan Milburn uh, did. So what that means, and we've heard uh, people within government say this, that they want, uh, and this is what Alan Milburn has said again recently, the key is to give as much power as possible To the managers of local hospitals or a a local, clearly defined health service area. And that's, you will hear more of this from Sunak empowering uh, hospitals, taking power away from the centre, and so on. But that is again fine on some levels. Of course, it is better if you have a brilliant, dynamic, innovative, hospital management team uh, taking responsibility for how they deliver and having more freedom to do so but that's quite a big if uh, having that dynamic innovative hospital management team so that's problem number one the second problem is this one of accountability and this is what became the source of such tension between uh, brown and blair over Blair's original plans for uh, NHS reform uh, in that Blair and Milburn wanted to give hospitals the right basically to make all the calls including how they uh, ran the financial side of their hospitals which raised the question you might remember it you'll all be too young to actually seems like yesterday to me it was really intense at the time Brown and his lot, you know, his entourage, posed the question, are we going to let hospitals go bust? If we're going to give them this power uh, to of near autonomy, presumably they have the power to go bankrupt. And then Brown would saying to Blair, we've just put up taxes to improve the NHS. Are we really going to do that and let hospitals go bust? and what do we do if the hospitals go bust? Um, Or are we saying we give them autonomy, but they're not allowed to go bankrupt, so if they behave irresponsibly, they'll be bailed out, in which case they're not really in a sort of financially testing place, because the government will always bail them out. And this is why these issues are so complicated. And then you come to the crippling stifling uh juxtaposition in which these arguments are kind of contextualized which is it was a phrase invented by tony blair partly to torment gordon brown which is reform versus anti reform as if and and cameron used it as well uh he copied a lot of the phrases from the blair era as if there's only one kind of reform and if you don't back that reform you are anti-reform but as i said no one is wholly anti-reform i know literally no one who says oh well this thing should just carry on uh untested and un, you, you uh, now as now internally within the NHS where people are in despair about the blurred lines of accountability and responsibility of the sort of fractured system that emerged from a particular version of reform now what was really interesting uh in oh god I'm going to mention the guy from the jungle again I know you get worked up when I mention him but this is in a different context when um Matt Hancock was health secretary. Um, there was a very interesting sequence. By the way, this was not the first time this has happened. That sort of uh, Boris Johnson, who was prime minister then, God, hasn't politics moved so fast? These people are so distant now, one famous for being in the jungle, the other on the after-dinner speech circuit earning a quarter of a million quid a time. Um, Johnson would say to Hancock, do this, do that. And Hancock would say, well, we can't. And Johnson, why can't we? And he said, well, we've given that power away to another body um that was our reform program and johnson said we've got to take this power back and hancock said yeah so then hancock will give interviews saying uh, the reforms uh as delivered by that coalition era has led to a system that is too fractured and that some centralization is required and that for a time was jeremy hunt's view when he was chair of the uh Treasurer, the Health Select Committee. But I sense that with uh, Sunak, uh, he will move closer to the theoretical Milburn position of reform, which is to try and devolve power. But he won't like it, Sunak, with that Treasury balance the books uh, mindset, because in doing so, inevitably, almost by definition, the centre loses control of how the money is being spent. So these things are really challenging. But here are some of the thoughts I have about reform, uh, some of which we have explored in the past, of course, and I know many of you take a different view. It does seem to me that one of the things the coalition created were layers of duplication. So the role of the health secretary, the elected figure, and the head of NHS England uh, is unclear. What is what are their distinctive roles? And there is, it seems to me, a level of either duplication or awkward cooperation at best between the health department and NHS England. And um, I kind of I read a, a, a policy think tank uh, report the other day which questioned whether NHS England should continue, and I think that is a valid question. Uh, It was very interesting during the pandemic. There was never, you remember those Downing Street press conferences, there wasn't a single one in which the health secretary appeared, then, of course, the jungle man, Hancock, appeared with the head of NHS England, then Simon Stevens, not once the reason being that basically their roles were very similar and it posed questions about who was really responsible. Now, the answer became, it seems to me, uh, the government, Hancock, number 10 in its confused, bewildered state, the Treasury. Um, uh, But NHS England pulled many of the levers to Johnson's bewilderment because he would never have fully understood the um, reform programme that was implemented in the coalition era, um, and so I think that is an issue to look at. Sorry, I know we've got many listeners in Scotland. NHS England is an irrelevance to those of you listening to other part from other parts of the UK and the rest of the world. But as a model, uh, it seems to me uh, to be one that is worth revisiting as a reform. Uh, we've talked on this program. Uh, program, I kind of forget where I am uh, on this podcast about um, co-payments. Uh, whether co-payments not only is a means to bring money into the NHS, uh, and some of you question whether it is, uh, and I fully I found those uh, brilliant responses to this discussion really illuminating. But it also changes the dynamic a bit. It it, it makes the patient. Uh, more engaged with the levels of responsibility that he or she has in relation to health and how they use a service um i think that's worth looking at but it will never be so that is wholly taboo so the, the many of you who are opposed to it i think can rest assured that won't happen but that raises the question of how the money does come in um and we've explored this over recent weeks and months um, So. Inevitably, reform is on the agenda at any given time Uh, in relation to the NHS. It's not true that it goes off the agenda. The kind of post-coalition prime ministers, health secretaries, NHS England and all the rest of it, obviously try to manage those range of reforms awkwardly, because none of them really fully understood the, the other word we all love here, consequences of the coalition reforms. Um, so there will be reforms of those reforms, but they there are many routes that can be taken. But we will just hear and read uh, f- from early 2023, oh, Sunak wants reform, and anyone who's against reform is a sort of um, in the dinosaur age. But I said, I don't know anyone against reform. It, that word is uh, too imprecise. There are versions of reform of the NHS, and that's where the debate should be. So, yeah, uh, Wes Streeting, Shadow Health Secretary, uh, he, of course, he's got to focus on. He's not going to just sit there and say everything's fine. And say no one. It's, but it will be interesting to hear in more detail his version of reform, um, as it will others. But if Rishi Sunak thinks there's a wand called reform that you wave and delivery improves immediately, um, he is even more overwhelmed and inexperienced uh, than I already know him to be. We all do. He's never been a cabinet minister in charge of a department other than the treasury. So this is all relatively new to him, as is managing industrial disputes Um, in some ways he's doing okay and I'll look at that in January when we reflect together on the year ahead Um, but in others I think he he, his lack of experience of departmental complexities and um, his fiscal conservatism uh, provide a, a, a dance that will not lead him to solutions um, in a way that I gather he assumes they will do so anyway follow that word reform Um, it's a word as I say like the center ground that will be ubiquitous in coming months Um, but the imprecision is not only uh, kind of irritating it's dangerous it really is uh, we need much more precision in uh, political debate. Obviously, in the run-up to an election, uh, evasiveness is unavoidable and part of the art of pre-election politics. But us lot not standing for election, yet anyway, I'm always tempted, personally. Don't know. Well, I know some of you listening are elected or are standing. Well, you're in a different position. You've got to deploy the art of evasion but the rest of us need to explore these issues so when post-election a government faces the challenge of reform uh it means something uh, more precise than one uh, route towards reform anyway look thank you for, i told you it would be festive fun <music> What's going on In the American election Scare and bemuse you In equal measure Want to know What Biden and Trump Are up to Without tearing your hair out Then you need To listen to American Friction The brand new podcast About the countdown To the big vote In November From the makers Of Oh God What Now The Bunker And Paper Cuts Every Friday We'll speak to Leading experts And blockbuster Commentators From the United States To explain The latest news And the big issues Behind the vote That's American Friction With me Jacob Jarvis Me Chris Jones and me, Nikki McCann Ramirez. Out every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. And now, let's have a look at your questions. So yeah, just a reminder, it's steverick14 at iCloud.com. Uh, If you want to uh, raise points, uh, put in questions over the uh, festive period. And what I'm going to do, because it is near Christmas, um, if it's okay with you, we have had some brilliant questions all along familiar, similar themes because they reflect on recent podcasts. So I'm just going to choose a few, if that's okay with all of you, that represent a much wider selection of uh, views and the first one is on uh tim bale the i, I always say the legendary tim bale because i mean it i think he is um he if you remember last week had emailed about voices in politics and that triggered a whole range of thoughts and it's uh, you know as in uh, is is an issue for rishi sunak and to some extent keir starmer the voice the sound of the voice And I find that very interesting and argue that the voice is a very underestimated element of um, how people are projected in public life, how they project themselves. Um, Anyway, uh, had loads of responses. And I'm going to read uh, a couple out because they're slightly different in perspective. So Andrew Kitchen writes, as I listened to your last episode, I smiled when you talked about Sunak's voice. I think the comment had come in from uh, Professor Tim Bale. A few months ago, someone on Twitter said that Sunak's voice was very similar to the character Will, played by the great Simon Bird in The In Us. I now can't get that out of my head. He comes across as someone who would request extra calculus homework sheets. Not a vote winner, probably. Uh, if that's how he comes across. I must admit that Starmer is someone else who has a voice that's not easy on the ear, as was Ed Miliband. Where are the mellifluous, uh, malef- male- melif- 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 no, mellifluous, yeah, mellifluous, Shakespearean actor-politicians with voices honed by years of smoking cigars and sipping claret it's sad to see so few natural orators these days um yeah oh and Andrew adds he thinks there's an outside chance of an election next year either because of conservative party wars or a sudden improvement in popularity for the conservatives and a dash to the polls I don't think that's going to happen Andrew I think it's going to be 2024 uh, because neither of the wars if they happen mean the conservatives won't be in a position to call an election because they're unpopular um And I don't think they'll be ahead in a way that makes an election uh, desirable or feasible for them in 2023. But who knows? 2023 is looming. In terms of, you don't have to have that actually cigar voice, where you have a deep, slight kind of throaty voice, the product of the cigars and claret. Um, Because some of the great orators uh, have voices that are not naturally act or lee in that way and yet can cast a spell. I won't repeat myself listen last week if you didn't hear I gave some examples but a different view uh, from uh, Nadim Khan who says regarding the point about Rishi sunak's slightly higher pitch voice in the context of leadership, I think it should also be considered that a key leadership quality is the ability to flow and be fluent when communicating uh he sunak seems at ease with thinking on his feet this enables him to sound convincing even without a deep set voice um it has uh helped that his predecessors boris johnson paused too much and often introduced rather obscure classic references and two liz Truss seemed weak under scrutiny which meant she didn't know what she was talking about now i think that's a good point uh I, I think Rishi Sunak is a good interviewee, and is actually quite good at the soundbite, which is a difficult thing to pull off. You know, he, he's he's a he's a rather ghostly figure most of the time, uh, or has chosen to be so far. Um, but he appears, you know, sometimes giving a twenty-second soundbite on uh, some issue or other, and he does it uh, in a way that is 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 fine. And it, it and doesn't look odd. And you're right, Johnson, it's a myth that he was this great communicator. I know people uh, liked him for a time because of, the, you know, they thought he was a good laugh. Uh, but he was unbelievably hesitant and awkward as a public performer. Uh, he he is fluent. He's more fluent than Theresa May as well. And that is a, a, an advantage in terms of his capacity to appear authoritative but uh, Tim's point made last week was that the pitch it is an issue in terms of his wider capacity to cast a spell Uh, it is Blair like his voice but I argued last week Blair uh, has a voice that is melodious and can cast a spell and he hasn't got that It's, it's an octave up okay so that was one issue we've been looking at in recent podcasts and noah Keat has written in about another he says a recent theme of your podcast and political discourse more generally is the sense britain isn't working i noticed that by the way it is a real theme even when we begin on other issues uh, it comes back it's a recurring theme this bloody country ain't working if we were to sum up the rock and roll politics cooperative it's kind of that nothing is bloody working in this country You've got to start bloody working as you know that that's it really anyway noah goes on to say this can be taken both literally through strike action but also metaphorically in the sense infrastructure is failing crumbling and not providing the expected service to consumers Could one of the long-term reasons for this be an inability of politicians to manage balancing the needs of present generations, i.e. the current electorate, against future generations? This could be seen in a multitude of areas, not least housing and energy development. While more housing will benefit future generations, it's in the political interest of politicians to oppose new planning developments as the present generation, their electorate, are against it. Similarly, the famous clip of Nick Clegg opposing nuclear power in 2010, because it wouldn't be operational until 21-22, again highlights short-termism embedded in uh, energy development. How can this be resolved? And Noah uh, wishes us all a wonderful, relaxing Christmas break, Uh, and here's to a better 2023. Thank you, Noah. Have a great Christmas yourself. Yeah, this is one of the great uh, dilemmas of electoral politics, the short-term versus the long-term. And housing illustrates it more than any other issue, although that Clegg quote is a classic, because here we are now in 2022, completely buggered, because of the inability not only to plan in terms of nuclear power, uh, but to even, con- con- you know, the, Germany has got energy conserved whereas we don't we think in such short term cycles we don't bother with that and we're the country facing power cuts even though we are less dependent on Russian energy than Germany obviously and some other countries uh, the short termism in uh, certainly over the last twelve years um, has been extraordinary but beyond that as well yeah and I think what has to happen is as, as I think I mentioned last week there has to be a resurrection of the 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 term planning to be seen as a good thing Uh, to plan in a way that generates growth now but then benefits future generations Uh, house building is is one example of this but obviously so is uh, developing alternative forms of energy which won't happen overnight but can get People into jobs can develop skills very quickly, which uh, leads to to growth. Uh, but these things need planning for, and if everything is short termist and the treasury says that's a waste of money, we won't do that. We don't need to do that because energy is cheap at the moment. Instead sort of looking ahead and planning, um, uh, I'm going to look at when the notion of planning went out of fashion. Uh, uh obviously 79 onwards uh it kind of went out and maybe it went out with that 45 government but uh, uh planning is uh essential and can have short-term benefits but but you're right this is a, a real dilemma and we're not going to get the house building uh that we need it, well they've given up on that already haven't they? It's one of the uh, early sunak u-turns thank you very much noah Finally, Nigel Bannerman from Brittany in France. Um, And, yeah, this is another thing we've been looking at uh, with old uh, Hancock in the jungle and then leaving politics and all those Tories suddenly, you know, including young ones, saying they're going. Uh, Nigel from Brittany says, my question is about trends in UK politics. Does the increase in the number of current UK senior politicians leaving politics... Early reflect a decrease in the power and status of the UK in comparison with the US, where both recent presidential candidates were over seventy. Senior senators and Congress people appear still to stick around as long as they can, and even ex-presidents remain actively involved in campaigning. Well, I don't know if if that is the reason, uh, uh, Nigel, the sort of decline in power of the UK, so people just say, "I oh, sod it, I'm I'm leaving." Um, and I don't think it's a good thing that in America it seems to be that the only candidates for presidents can, uh, have to be uh, well over 70 and probably over 80 in some cases in the next presidential election. Although it looks as if Trump won't be there, not that he'll be 80 next time, he'll be close to 80 actually, uh, if you were to stand and win um uh the would surely it must be as uh to, to revive a blair term a third way between the the u.s model of people going on into their 80s sometimes um and the uk model where we get prime ministers in their late 30s early 40s then retiring uh in their kind of late 40s early 50s with an ill-defined role in their political futures and also these politicians leaving at a relatively early age the moment it looks that they are no longer be prominent in a governing party so I, I just don't know what the answer is in terms of making politics a vocation again where people feel very committed when a party loses see when a party loses an election you can have two mindsets. One, right, I'm going to bugger off and make a load of money. Um, or, uh, which used to be the case of virtually every single prominent politician, right, I'm gonna, there's going to be a huge debate about the future of this party. I want to be part of it and lead it. Um, so, you know, you uh, wither the Tories if they lose next time is a really interesting question. But who will be there to lead it? If um, if they all leave and if Labour lose for the fifth time in a row, um, who are the big figures who are going to make sense of that one um, if, if that were to happen? And if there's a hung parliament, you need really big figures in whoever forms that government to have the energy, agility, uh, sense of the past because you need to look at how other hung parliaments have functioned uh yeah and if they all go off to make a ton of money this will be a huge missing element but equally i think some of them should bugger off when they're in their 80s and vacate those seats to people like some of us maybe um so we become constrained in what we can say in the build up to the next election but for the time being that's not the case so if it's okay with you i think we're going to stop now Uh, But thank you so much for all your questions. They were fantastic, and they were the kind of themes of them, and I think the ones I've read out kind of reflected it. Before we have a sort of ceremonial, Uh, pre-Christmas farewell. I just want to say to all of you who subscribe to Patreon, thank you so much for doing it. It's been the first year of Patreon, and uh, it's been brilliant for me to have that alternative version of rock and roll politics. And I'm going to read out – we read out the names of the subscribers to thank them. So I'm going to thank Aileen Murphy, uh, James Singleton, uh, Richie L., Caroline Morgan, uh, Sarah Corkwell, Martin Faye. Um, yeah, uh, this week and more to be read out uh, next week. So thank you very much. And as I say, the next bonus podcast series is coming up um, and that will be on the troublemakers in British politics. I wonder whether I can include Harry and Meghan. That'll get the numbers up. So that will be in January. Now it's going to be, for those of you who think, ah, Christmas, uh, we need a a a gathering of the cooperative. There is going to be a podcast between Christmas and New Year next week, but this is the last one before Christmas. So I just want to say to all of you, I hope you have a fantastic time wherever you are within the Rock and Roll Politics Cooperative. Uh, let me know what you're cooking and how you're using the time fruitfully this festive period and have a pause from trying to make sense of it all. It's really important that we all have a pause for our own well-being uh god blimey i sound like some sort of psychedelic weirdo anyway look have a brilliant time happy christmas speak to you all next week before new year and yeah thanks so much for tuning in we need to get together soon but do have a break from time to make sense of it all thank you bye